going to say one. It's probably my favorite. We should all like every book of the Bible, but we can have favorites, right? Uh, so I'm excited to see what God will do. I was just thinking that one of our men's groups is going through Isaiah right now, except they're going to take two years to go through it. <laughs> so, but that's exciting because there's a lot in there. So there's a lot. All right. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 23. If you're visiting, my name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, please take some time to fill out our connection card just to let us know that you're here. Uh, but also happy Thanksgiving. So I know that there's a lots of family that are here visiting, um, and many people will be out and about doing that. Something to think about is uh, maybe inviting somebody who does not have family uh, in the area who might not be having Thanksgiving over into your home for family Thanksgiving. But uh, Acts 23 verses 1 to 11 is where we're going to be at on page 543 in that blue Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that one home. It's our gift to you. We believe that the word of the Lord is more precious than gold and silver. And that is why we want you to have it. It is the best gift that we can give you. It is where we learn about who God is and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. But as you turn there, what does trust enable you to do? You know, we, hopefully at some point you've been on a roller coaster in your life. At least you've given one a try. If not, you know, I, I got a head shake. That's unfortunate. Um, it might be a little too late for you to go get one, but... I would encourage you to try that. I had a professor who was like 75 years old and still going on roller coasters. He would go on roller coaster tours um, until his health failed him. Um, had nothing to do with the roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to put that on there. Or maybe uh, doing one of those trust falls that you see in the, in the videos, which generally always end up poorly, but maybe you did one that was successful. Or maybe you're sitting in a chair, and if you're in this room, you're sitting in a chair. I'm looking, yeah, everyone's sitting. You're sitting in a chair. You trusted that chair enough to sit in it, even though you know of people who've sat in chairs and that chair is broken. I know people who have. Luckily, I have never broken a chair, but uh, there's always going ha to happen at some point. We trust a lot of things in our everyday life. Every day. We trust that our bed is going to be comfortable and warm and all those fun things when we get into it. Trust isn't an abstract thing, though. There's an action that follows when we trust in something or someone else. For example, when we see a chair and we trust that chair, we will sit in that chair. If you didn't trust that chair, you wouldn't sit in that chair. If you did not trust that chair and you sat in it, uh, you need to rethink trust in your life. We often talk about the need to trust God. So what about trusting in God? God's word says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, as Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says. But what does the trusting in God enable us to do? Because as I was saying, if you're sitting in that chair right now, you've trusted that chair to hold your weight, even though there are many examples of chairs breaking. If you've ever watched Americans Home Funniest videos, you know it happens. And trusting in that chair will hold you, has enabled you to sit in that chair. But unlike even a chair that can be break under our own weight, God has never broken under our weight. Not once. He has never failed. He has never broken a promise. So what does trusting in him enable us to do? 
What is the action that follows trusting in God? And as Pastor Chris was showing us last week that a gospel-transformed life gives a, a life that will defend the gospel with grace, and as we continue to close off Acts, we will see how Paul continues to put that into action as he trusts God. God's providence shines through as the apostle to the Gentiles is protected by, from his own people by the Gentiles. So please open your Bibles with me as you read Acts 23, verses 1 to 11. The word of the Lord says this. And looking intently into the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees start, uh, party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man, with him, sorry. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for the chance we have to gather to worship. On this Thanksgiving weekend, we get to reflect upon all the reasons why we can give thanks. But Lord, even if it is all stripped away this very day, we still, because we are in you, have reasons to give thanks. So Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see more of who you are. And Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified and I want to speak of you and praise your name. But God, I can't do this on my own. So as we were just learning about today, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. By your spirit, Lord, give us ears to hear and a heart to hear what your word has to say so that we may leave this place applying it to our lives. Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. So verse 1, we see uh, Paul is down there. He's with the crowd, and he's looking intensely at the crowd, and Paul looks directly at them. He looks right into their eyes, and he's not intimidated as he stands before this crowd that was literally trying to tear him apart not that much longer before. 
There's no shame. There's no regret. There's just fire in his eyes. And he says, brothers, as he seeks to connect with those who are listening, I have lived my life, he says. The word here is talking about being a good citizen. Paul is saying, I have been a good citizen. But if we know anything about Paul, as he continues to look around as we see his writings, we know that he views himself most importantly as a citizen of heaven. Not only is he a citizen of the Roman Empire, but he is a citizen of a more important kingdom, which is in heaven. And Paul had, done, had been a good citizen of heaven. Philippians 1 verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving by side, side by side by the faith of the gospel. He was a good citizen. And Paul states that he is living his life in the light of eternity, as Puritans used to say, which led him to this. But what does it mean to live your life as a citizen of heaven, like Paul is proclaiming here? It would mean to obey God rather than man, ignoring whatever the emotional and physical cost of following Jesus may be. You know, this applies to those who may be sick in their bed and, or dying of sickness, to the hostile work environment that you may have to go to on Tuesday. For us and Paul, in every context, in Christ, we are to live as though we belong to another kingdom. Because we've been obtained by the blood of Jesus Christ and brought into his kingdom. As he says, before, good, before God, he says, in all good conscience up to this day. So he has lived as a good citizen, as a citizen of not only the Roman Empire, but more importantly, the citizen of heaven. But he has also lived up to this moment in good conscience. So this begs the question, what is the conscience? Um, one book put it this way. A great book called Conscience, how, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ by, by uh, Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. I encourage you, I read it this summer, but he defines the conscience as this way. The conscience is your con conscientiousness, being aware of your surroundings, of what you believe is right and wrong. So that's how Paul could say this. That's what Paul means. He's always acted in accordance to what he believed is right and wrong. Even when he was persecuting the church, he was doing it because he believed that that was right and that he was on mark with what God has called him to be. Which is when the struggle comes when we say, I'm following my conscience. Uh, here's the reality with conscience. Uh, it's not perfect. Right? Sometimes our conscience has to be realigned with God's word. Because God's word is the ultimate authority, not our conscience. Not what we believe is right and wrong. See, Paul, when he says he's of good conscience, he isn't saying, I am sinless. He was saying that he was simply doing what he believed to be right and wrong up to this moment. And even following the leaders of the time. So he's not saying that he's sinless. 
That good conscience must be aligned to God's word. And even though Paul had a good conscience doing what he believed to be right, God had been graciously aligning Paul's conscience to his will so that he could even more say this now. He was being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit and being made more like Christ. That same book on conscience says this, If God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through his word that your conscience is registering a mistake, a mistaken moral judgment, and if you believe he wants you to adjust your conscience to better match his will, your conscience must bend to God. Which is why it's important to know God's word. I've spent a long time over the last three, four years, people saying this is an issue of conscience. But the problem is, is that your conscience needs to be aligned with God's word. It's not just something I get to do whatever I want. I'm, I'm guiltless in this. In other words, if your conscience hits head on with God's word, always obey God's word. Ignore your conscience. <laughs> obey God's word. And Paul says that he stands there knowing he has been faithful to what God has called him to do. Look, if it was just about having a good conscience, then anyone who believes truly in whatever they believe are, are okay. That's what that would mean. But we can stand before God's holy throne and say, well, God, you know, I was following my conscience. I, I have a good conscience with this situation. But the problem is this, is not one of us is righteous, not one. We all stand before God's throne as sinners, deserving of one thing, and that one thing is hell. And when God saves us, he gives us a new heart, and what comes along with that is a renewing of our mind, which is our conscience. The gospel is an amazing thing. It has a past, present, future implications in our life. It's not just something that we believe in and then it's like, yeah, we're good, you know. I'm going to drop this over here, put it on the shelf, let it get dusty, and not really talk about it ever again. The gospel continues to work in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, realigning ourselves to what God's word has to say. The gospel is that, that there is a holy God. And we have sinned against that holy God. And because of our sin, we've all sinned. We've all been born sin. We're all, we're all uh, depraved, seeking sin. Because of that, we deserve one thing, and that one thing is hell. But Jesus Christ steps down from his throne to pay the price that we can never pay, ever. So that everyone who repents and believes in him will have life. And when that happens, when that belief happens, we get the Holy Spirit who continues to help and encourage us and make us more like Christ. But it's, in, it's to this comment that Ananias reacts because Paul is viewed as a blasphemer. He's one who's against everything that they believe. And in verse 2 we see, And the high priest Ananias commands those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, we have to ask this question, who is Ananias? He was a high priest. He was part of the Sadducees, which means he was a leader. He was part of the council that led the Jewish people. He had great political power, but because he was a Sadducee, as we saw, there's a big difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee, right? One believed in the resurrection and angels and demons and spirits, which the Old Testament talks about, and the other one didn't. The Sadducees didn't. In the favor of political power, they began to give up what God's word truly said. Josephus, a Jewish historian, actually talks about 
Ananias' amazing corruption to the point that he would send his servants out to the threshing fold in the temple and get them to gather up all of the tithes of worship that were there that were meant for the regular priests. That's a huge no-no in the law. Amazing no-no. So here's this high priest who's supposed to represent the law who doesn't in no shape, fashion, form, anything obeys the law at all. And Paul gets into this. And maybe Paul in, his, his, in verse 3 is maybe being a little prophetic in what's going to happen. Because Paul doesn't deserve to be hit in the mouth. In fact, the law protected him from physical harm. So, here, the very man who's supposed to uphold the law is not upholding the law. So that's why Paul says in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Uh, That's a curse, by the way. Just to put that out there. Think of a bad word and inserts. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? He says. And we see Paul's reaction to what is happening to him, which was contrary to God's law. Is this an unknown prophetic word from Paul? We don't really know, but what I do know is historically Ananias is struck down. Not then, just in a few more years. There's a revolt that happens in Israel, a revolution, and and they find him hiding behind an aqueduct. And they get him, they drag him out there, and they kill him. But Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. A whitewashed wall is is something that looks stable but isn't. It's like taking a wall that's almost falling apart, and maybe there's mortar missing, and it, it looks like you could just blow on it, and it could just like fall over. You know, if you've seen a brick wall like that before. And we're like, well, I don't want to replace it. You know, maybe I'm moving out of that property right now. I don't, you know, you don't want to invest any money in a house that you're not going to be living in, right? Oh, here, I got some paint. I'm just going to cover it, right? So on the outside, it looks like this man is all together, but inside he's rotten to the core. I remember our first house that stuff and I bought in, in Center Hamilton, which was interesting in itself. That's a whole other story. But uh, our first house, it, it said that it had updated wiring, right? And it's an old house. It was about 100 years old. Some multiple renovations had happened. But as we got into the house, we started looking around, and we began to notice that there was not all updated. There's still some of that old-school, wonderful, lovely knob-and-tube wiring that everyone's supposed to get rid of, right? And for those who are younger, you have no idea what that means. Uh, but those who are older, you're like, yeah, that's bad. You know, it's not good. Our house had been whitewashed. The bare minimum had been done to make it look good to be sold. A whitewashed person is someone who looks healthy, but at his or her core is rotten. It's why we, we don't take things like numbers or attendance as something of a sign of health alone. Church health or program health or spiritual health is dictated by God, and one can't be healthy if they aren't first submitting themselves to what God's Word has to say. And that's what's happening here. 
for these people, including Ananias, they were whitewashed because on the outside they looked like they had it all together, but on the inside, at their heart, at their very core, they were rotten, they were disobedient, they didn't want anything to do with God, they wanted power and prestige. They were hypocrites, especially to the law. So in verse 4, but as those who stood by him began to point out, Paul was just, who had just spoken to the high priest. And, and here's something to think about. Regardless of the fact that Paul was right to say what he says, uh, because the high priest did break the law. He did break the law. Paul begins to be enlightened with something very important. He's still the high priest. He's still the ruler. In verse 5, he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And someone may say, well, you know, was he uh, sincere in this? And yes, he was, because he does quote the Old Testament later on, which we'll get to. But also, this, there's another argument that his eyesight was bad. And maybe he just didn't see. Or this was a, a rushed gathering of the Sanhedrin, so not everyone was dressed up, so you couldn't tell. And Paul hadn't been in uh, Jerusalem for over a decade, so how would he know who the high priest was? But I do know his response to that rebuke comes up in verse 5. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And Paul is in, he's genuine in his response as he says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Paul quotes Exodus 22, verse 28. He is actually more obedient to the law of God than the one who's supposed to be upholding the law of God. Which is amazing to me of what the power of the Holy Spirit does. See, it doesn't matter what someone else's actions are doing to me. I'm still held responsible for what God has called me to do. This is a pet peeve of mine in, 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 in marriage counseling. You know, someone comes to me, a couple comes, and they, we talk about it. And, and, and the spouse starts quoting Ephesians 5. And my husband or my wife is not doing this. And I go, that's not your, forget that. Are you doing what you're called to do? We're so fixated on what everybody else is doing. And Paul comes here, and he begins to, he, he begins to see that he was wrong in his reaction, even though Ananias deserved it. You know, there are days that I want to cry out like Paul. <laughs> you whitewashed wall? Not that it would mean anything. I don't know what the, the modern example would be. But the reality is, is that the law in Exodus and all the way to the New Testament in passages like 1 Peter 2, 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, is still in the Bible, right? Our conscience needs to align with God's will. The office is to be held in awe even though those who occupy it themselves are scoundrels. Let me ask you, is that not really applicable for us today? Do, do you see what Paul trust in God enables him to do? See, I look at what happens in this country and I cry out all the time, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
And I don't know the whys of this uncertain world, but I know the one who is certain. And Christian, we are not to vilify those whom God has placed over us. We are called to honor them, as 1 Peter 2, 17 says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And may I add that context matters and Peter is about to get killed for preaching the gospel by the emperor. We may say, well, God, you can't possibly mean our, our, our prime minister. You, you really can't mean that. You, you, don't, you don't see what's happening, God. And his response is, am I not the God who created the heavens and the earth? Am I not the God who called Abraham out of his land to bring him to the promised land? Am I not the God who fulfilled his promises to David with my son, Jesus Christ? Am I not the God who fulfills all the promises of the covenant and the promises of the Old Testament and fulfilled all the requirements of the law by being found in human form, humbled myself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death to the cross? So yes, I do see it, he replies. And then he says, and I will deal with it. Trust me. What do, do what I have commanded you to do. We shouldn't follow current trends of mocking the ones who occupy a place of authority. That is not walking in a way worthy of the gospel. Paul had full right to do it. Yet he still is convicted by God's word his conscience is being aligned to what God's word has to say. And I didn't say we shouldn't make our grievances known. I didn't say you shouldn't protest. I didn't say you shouldn't write letters. I didn't say any of those things, okay? So don't someone come to me and say you said that. I did not say that. I said you should not vilify. So please continue to write and call your political leaders. But remember that the gospel itself is shamed by this contact, conduct because let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ because we're primarily, if you're in Christ, you are primarily a citizen of heaven, not this earth. And can I be honest with you? I don't like this passage. I do not like this verse. I don't. But something that I've learned is that if I'm never struggling with God's word when he's the one that's holy and I'm the one that's sinner, I'm probably in the wrong. And by probably, I mean like 100%. Then I need to wonder if I'm reading this right. God's word never, if God's word is never uh, disagreeing with me, like I am not that holy. And you're not either, so... Take that out. If your conscience is never up against obeying God's word, I don't know. Because we're always called to obey God. Not because we have to, but because we love the one who died the most unjust death on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sins. I've been so convicted of this over the last few years, and I don't do it enough, but I, I can spend more time mocking the very people who are sovereign providential God placed an authority over me than I do what God's word actually commands me to do. 
1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all those who are in high positions, and as Pastor Chris prayed, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to know the truth. You know what my reply is when I read what Paul's done here? Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, forgive us. Renew our minds so that we may be more aligned for our conscience, that our, our conscience would be more aligned with what your will is for us, rather than what our feelings are dictating, that we may trust in you, who is certain in the midst of uncertainty. So Paul, uh, he's living his life in light of this eternity. And Paul trusts God in the midst of uncertainty, which enables him to be faithful in proclaiming the message about Jesus and act in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Paul's trust in God enabled him to do this, and that trust helped him in an uncertain time as also, to also proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that Paul has no idea really what's going to happen. He's living step by step. He doesn't know. He's already been rescued once from a mob that literally wanted to tear him apart. And now he's here. In verses 6 to 10, we see trusting God to proclaim his message. And we can see this this genius tactic. uh, When I was doing my undergrad dissertation stuff, um, I I remember uh, I wrote my paper and I had to present it to a committee and had to argue it. And I had the great idea. I was like, wait, you guys disagree. So I spent my whole time listening to them disagree with each other. It was fantastic. Um, it was a great way of passing a dissertation. I don't suggest you do that. <laughs> but we can see the genius tactic here, but really Paul's words show that it's more than just a tactic. It's about declaring a hope that, is, that he has in Jesus Christ. In verses 6 to 7, Paul sees that there are two groups of people, and Luke takes time to explain the differences between these two groups of this ruling council of the Sanhedrin. And Paul comes and he proclaims, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. And once again, he's connecting himself to the crowd. And he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection for the dead that I am on trial. And Paul proclaims a message about Jesus right in that simple sentence. Using the opportunity to once again proclaim the gospel. So how does the resurrection of Jesus bring us hope? Jesus' resurrection means we are justified. Romans 4, 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection defeated death. We just sung about that. As Romans 6, 9 says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus' resurrection means that we are united with Christ. As verse 8 says of chapter 6, now if we have died with Christ, we we believe that we will also live with him. 
See, but Jesus' resurrection gives us a living hope, as 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is truly hope. And which is why we can say along with Paul in Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus' resurrection means that for those who are in Christ, we will be raised too. Oh, 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Is that not great hope? So I call on those who are in Christ, as Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And as Jesus asks, I'll ask you too, do you believe this? Oh, Christian, are you living in light of this hope? Because it is the hope that Paul goes forward doing what he is doing and saying what he is doing. How can a Christian live as though they are defeated when we have a Savior who is victorious over life and death? The hope of the resurrection changes our reality. So that all, even our circumstances, in any circumstance, we have a hope. And Paul proclaims that hope. Should that not light a fire underneath us? as we talk with our coworkers, as uh, to our school friends, or to our, our parents, other parents at the park, or other residencies, residents at the dining table. And I remind you that Halloween is coming up, which I will agree is probably one of the darkest days of our year. But what a great opportunity to tell people about the hope of the resurrection than on a day that celebrates death. In a day that people are literally coming to your door. Literally coming to your door. Pastor Chris is getting tracks. Actually, they're already here. When I wrote this, he hadn't yet. That are available for us. I encourage you to take some. If you do Halloween or if you don't, this isn't that type of argument. But if you are going to participate in this day, I encourage you to use it and redeem this for the glory of God. Let's get the gospel out in this city. Let's get these tracts and start handing them out with the candy. It's not hard. Put them in a little baggie. Put some candy bars in there, the good ones, not the cheap ones. Okay, because again, <laughs> walking away worthy of the gospel. Get the good chocolate bars. Okay, it all matters. It all matters. Be generous with those chocolate bars. Put the gospel in there. 
because it is the greatest gift we have. It is the greatest gift. It is the hope of the resurrection. And if you can, show up on that Tuesday and come in with Pastor Chris and just start handing them out on the streets. Help give out hot chocolate and candy. Maybe I'm going overstepping here. Go to Costco and get that chocolate that's on sale right now. (laughs) Whatever you got to do, let us get the gospel out there because it's the hope. It is our hope. And don't we want other people to know about it? Verse 9, the Pharisees see nothing wrong with him based on these comments, which is interesting because that means that the Pharisees at this time aren't that far from the gospel, may I add. They believe in the resurrection. They just don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he was resurrected. But nonetheless, they still have rejected salvation because they've rejected Jesus. And in verse 10, it gets to the point that the tribune has to get Paul out of there because the crowd is going nuts. There's an ongoing theme here, isn't there? And it's at this point, what could be the questions that are going through Paul's mind? Will I ever get to Rome? Am I going to die right here in this place? Is, is the Chibin going to realize that there's really no legal reason for me to be here and he's going to like release me into the wild and I'm going to be stuck here with all these people that hate my guts? But Paul continues to trust. And once again, Jesus comforts him as Paul continues to take steps of faithfulness and is seeking to be faithful. In verse 11, we see trusting God who is providential and sovereign. So the following night, the Lord stood by him. Don't go over that quick. What did Paul just declare to everybody? The hope of the resurrection, was it not? And here's Jesus, resurrected Jesus, standing there with Paul, standing by him. And Paul had just been proclaiming the hope of the resurrection. And there in his cell stands the man who he was just proclaiming. And Paul is sitting there in prison with questions that are filling his mind. And there stands Jesus Christ, resurrected. All doubt begins to melt away. The very one whom he had just been proclaiming to the crowd. Paul's faith isn't found in some dead person who's in the ground, but in the resurrected Lord who is Lord over all. And we don't have a dead Savior, brothers and sisters, who is in some grave somewhere that we can visit. We have a risen Savior whose death was sufficient to pay the price for our sins so that those who repent and believe can boldly approach the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 says. Because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Paul will need to be reminded of this because Jesus says, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts, not theory, facts, about me in Jerusalem. See, Paul has faithfully testified of Jesus. This is the same word that Luke uses in Luke 24, 48. You are witnesses of these things, Jesus says to his disciples. And what is Paul testifying of? 
He is testifying that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah who fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, that he died to pay the price for his people's sin so that all who repent, who acknowledge that they have sinned against the holy God and believe that that his death is sufficient will be saved. This is not an act of man, but an act of God who he himself alone can save. So he must testify also in Rome. And Jesus doesn't come to tell Paul, hey, enjoy your retirement. But that he will continue to testify Jesus Christ. See, the message of Jesus Christ will not only go to the lowest as he is chained in prison, but to the highest ranks of the Roman Empire. Paul had been faithful in his circumstances to bring the message about Jesus. And Jesus will bring him to this epic center of the Gentile world to testify of the message to those who are in Rome. And Paul will go in the lights of eternity as a citizen of heaven. But notice this, Jesus didn't come to him to free him from his circumstances. But Jesus does remind him that he will be with him and his promises will never fail. And that's the same for us. I don't know how many times I have been asked that why question of why something has happened. See, I often reflect upon that a lot. You know, I reflect upon the first funeral I ever conducted, who I did it with my senior pastor, as I buried one of my youth who was 16 years old and died in her sleep. I remember hugging her grandmother as she cried, asking why and how her mother was doing the same and the 20-odd young people who were crying the same way. I remember my unborn nephew being buried in what looked like a a, a cardboard box as my brother-in-law carried him. And you got to ask why. I get it. But notice that Jesus doesn't come to free him from those circumstances. He promises that he's going to be with him in those circumstances. See, what is our response to such hardships that is in this broken world? And you may be suffering physically and and wondering what in the world is going on or, or whatever. Insert your own circumstances into this. Think about it. Dwell upon it. What is your why's? But what is the response to such hardship in this broken world? And God doesn't promise freedom from our suffering. He promised freedom from the chains of sin. And that is in our repentance and belief. And he will walk with us through those dark times. We go to the why question, but right here, once again, we're reminded of a Savior. See, the danger is we often try to answer the why when we have no business trying to answer it rather than sitting with those who are crying in their tears, who are weeping and asking their questions and cry with them and simply point them to the Savior who promises that he will be with them in all circumstances. See, in the midst of heavy trials, as one commentary put it, God is working out his purpose and advancing his kingdom And there is no circumstance in which this is not true. We must be ready, wherever God may put us, to testify the gospel. 
Look, there is so much uncertainty in our lives, but if you are in Christ, there is something that is sure and certain. Jesus is on his throne. God is good in all circumstances. God is providential, and which means that there, he has the ability to fulfill his sovereign will, but not only that, there is a plan and a purpose even in our suffering. If there is no God who is sovereign, there's no purpose in our suffering. And I am called to trust and you are called to trust, and God has graciously shown us over and over and over and over again that with all the uncertainty of life, He is certain. It is right there that we see God's mission will be fulfilled. The message of Jesus will go out, and, Paul will, and God will use Paul and his church to accomplish Jesus' mission to bring the message about Jesus to this world, and there will be no force, not the entire Roman Empire. There will be no scheme, not the Jewish scheme, which this isn't the only one that's going to happen. There is no power of creation, even with the storms that, that rock the sea, that will keep Paul from declaring the hope of the resurrection to Rome. We will keep the creator of all things from completing. There's nothing that will keep the creator of all things from completing Jesus' mission to bring the message about Jesus while using Paul or even us. And Paul's actions are shown, showing he's trust. So what? You may ask. Think about that roller coaster again. Think about the chair that you're sitting in. What has trusting in that chair enabled you to do? Hopefully it's been comfortable. If you're sitting right now, you've trusted that chair. But unlike a chair, God has never broken under our weight. He has never lied. He has never broken a promise. And he has promised those who are his that he will never leave them. Matthew 28 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We often stop there and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you sometimes. No, always. Till when? Tomorrow. No, to the end of the age. Jesus reminds Paul of that, that he can trust him in these uncertain times. And Paul trusts, enables him to be faithful in his witness. And God is the one that makes it effective. So what does trusting in God enable us to do? Trusting God in the midst of uncertainty makes us ready to proclaim his message with certainty. So who are you going to trust in? You're going to trust in your government? Uh, That's a pretty low bar. Are you going to trust in your abilities? Hell fails. We all get old. We're all fragile. Are you going to trust in your intellect? You're one stroke away. We live in a world of uncertainty, but we have a certain hope that is rooted in a God who is sovereign and providential, where nothing will go to waste. Paul trusted that God will accomplish what he said he would accomplish. His tr- he trusts, is rooted in the hope of the resurrection, and that enabled him to give up everything for the sake of the gospel because the greatest treasure he has is knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So trusting God in the midst of uncertainty makes us ready to proclaim his message with certainty. Let's pray.